70 record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. But the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? 98.4 Capital FM and welcome to Financial Focus on this fine Tuesday. Good evening, good evening, good evening. On a day that a lot is going to be happening and I hope you're ready for this exciting episode. Alongside Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist, Mentor Economics and myself, Danny Muni, with a very, very special guest. To listen to us online, www.radio.capitalfm.co.ke is forward slash listen live or download the iCapital FM radio app on any of your devices. Be the first to know what's happening on the global markets every Monday morning, bright and early, by visiting www.mentoria.co.ke to subscribe. A very special guest indeed, Danny. Today we have a special treat. And before I introduce our guest, let me give our episode some context. Danny, if I've said nothing else on this show, is that Kenya needs to get into production mode. And for that to happen, we have to embrace the four factors of production, land, labor, capital, and most importantly, entrepreneurship. In that, Danny, you remember that we've actually focused on Joseph Schumpeter and his idea of the entrepreneur. But the reality is the entrepreneur does not work alone, particularly here in Kenya and in many parts of Africa, the entrepreneur really is part of a family framework, a family enterprise. In fact, many SMEs, and SMEs contribute about 80% of our GDP, are family-owned businesses. So today we're going to have an expert on matters family business, family-owned businesses, deconstructing them. What's the state of family business in Kenya? And we have the pleasure of having Wanja Mishuki, who is a family business coach and runs Be Bold Consulting and Advisory. She holds an MBA from Columbia University, that's an Ivy League university, is a CFA, and really spends her entire nine to five navigating through issues, opportunities, risks, and really advises family businesses on what are the measures they should take to really maximize the opportunities because the benefits are there but the work as you'll learn today there's quite a bit of work that needs to be done thank you ken wanja welcome to financial focused thank you first time first <laughs> for time. sure very good we'll get back to this um if you have any questions queries inquiries you can reach us on whatsapp 0701984984 or you can tweet us at capital fm kenya hashtag financial focused now, just jumping right in, Ken, equity markets look really interesting. The S&P, the Nasdaq, the Dow Jones, the Hang Seng, and the FTSE all seem to be very upset. Why? Yes, uh, Janet Yellen has been trying to make a case for Bidenomics. Um, she's really trying to convince America, and remember elections are not too far away, that Bidenomics is working, pointing to low and in inflation, low unemployment, uh, but really um, there's still some sense of concern, particularly with small businesses, that maybe things are not as rosy as she makes that out to be. Um, global markets today woke up to strong retail data. The retail data is actually better than what was expected, and a lot of people feel the Fed uh, will continue tightening because what the Fed looks at is really um, how 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 resilient the markets are. And with the likelihood of another Fed raise, that is putting the stock market um, quite on a downturn because that might mean um, a recession or a big slowdown. In China, again, China, we've talked about it, really they're trying to slash interest rates. That is not convincing markets that that's enough. And that's really driving uh, fear among investors. So the US-China, what we've called the bilateral relationship of our lifetime is really facing uh, a tough time. Europe is not doing any better. 
Um, and, and that's why the bond market's actually doing well. A lot of investors are flowing into bonds because they're finding safety away from the stock. So to your point, it's quite bearish um, from the U.S., from China, uh, and uh, we expect that to be the trend until better uh, data starts coming through. I purposely left out the Nikkei because the big story on capitalfm.co.k slash business is that Jap- Japanese economic growth smashes the outlook that maybe guys are looking at. And the word here is smashing. It's quite big. What's making Japan stand out of all the other big economies in comparison? Well, Japan's monetary policy has been what you call ultra-loose. Uh, they've really tried to dish out more money to businesses. Um, their yield curve, it's only a few weeks ago that they started to sort of uh, raise interest rates. Uh, but for the most for the most part, Japan has been scared of a deflation because Japan has actually been stuck in a deflation for quite a number of years. So for them really uh, pushing money, when during the period of QE, they were sort of after the United States, the second biggest economy um, to push liquidity into the market. So I think uh, they're also benefiting from a slowdown in China. China's market, in fact, if you look at one of the big property developers there, Country Garden, is really in big problems. So I think Japan is really benefiting from that change um, sort of in sentiments. And I think it's, it's, it's positive, uh, particularly for the new central bank governor there. In terms of the continent, the big five economies, what's the outlook? I think here at home, Kenya, we are finding a lot of foreign investors coming through. Uh, the foreign le- participation has actually increased since last week. So it tells us that uh, possibly a lot of people who had expected maybe the U.S. interest rates to have um, stopped going up are starting to come back to the continent. And that is really driving up uh, what you're finding, the African bosses here or the JSE. Uh, South Africa still has those challenges we've talked about, but you're finding a lot more foreign investors um, coming back to the continent. And I think that's a, a good thing temporarily, but I think at the end of the day, we need to push that narrative that Africans really need to be owning more of these stocks um, and, and, and not exposing themselves to what we call hot money. However, Kenyan CEOs don't seem quite confident. They Actually, the article reads, Kenyan CEOs are unimpressed with the economic outlook. Is yeah. there some sort of data that they are mining from that just is not making them happy? or? Well, that story came from the central bank. Every two months, they run a CEO survey, really asking them questions. And most of these CEOs tend to be from the banks, uh, from the microfinances and tourism companies, and really asking them, what's your outlook on inflation? What's your outlook on growth? It's no secret, Danny, that you know the cost of living has gone up. Uh, when fuel prices went up, um, really it made the production process of businesses uh, that much harder. So it's not a surprise that people are worried that people's spending power, number one, is reducing. You have all these levies that have come in, uh, the housing levy, the VAT on fuel. Thank God fuel prices didn't go again yesterday. Looks like we are back into subsidy mode. I think that's a good thing. Uh, but the cost of doing business has been going up and CEOs are seeing uh, sort of like what you'd call the purchasing power, the consumer confidence are uh, really um, hurting. In terms of commodities, all metals seem to be going down apart from steel. And the expectation would be that if there seems to be signs that the bonds, sorry, the stocks are not looking very well, then the hedge would probably be on gold and bonds. But also gold is not performing well. Gold tends to be the hedge against inflation. But remember, inflation is coming down in most countries, in the U.S., even here in Kenya. So the hedge effect really um, is not significant. But with the other metals, those are strongly tied to China. When Chinese demand, particularly in the property market, which consumes much of these uh, metals, when that goes down and there are some serious uh, data coming out, for example, total loans going to real estate, for example, in China have gone down. So those weigh down um, the metals that we've seen. But despite that, China still has a big uh, stranglehold on some of the key, what you call the rare earth metals for its own particular use. But from a commodity perspective, 
uh, when China is bearish, uh, I'd imagine all the metals uh, really um, tend to go south. Agricultural commodities, wheat is down, sugar is down, canola is up, coffee is down, tea is up, rice is up, and palm oil is up. There seems to be a bit of a recovery in some of these agricultural commodities. Particularly tea, and I think that tea has been building up from the narrative we spoke about last week. Some of the key markets are coming up, uh, particularly in um, North Africa and in the Middle East. If you look at Egypt, um, Egypt, despite its economic problems, really, the consumption, if the tourist levels are up, consumption of these things uh, such as tea is up. So I think that's driving uh, tea up. But for most agricultural commodities, particularly the China-linked ones, and that's why China continues to really revolve, whether it's metallic commodities, food commodities, uh, um, anything that's not tied to Russia, Ukraine, almost is entirely driven by Chinese demand. And that's the reason you're finding most of them sort of um, um, looking, looking down. Any exciting news from crude? It still seems to be declining. Clearly, the cut in production is not helping to kind of keep the prices competitive. Is there any likelihood that is going to change direction? It's, well, it's not because global growth is looking quite weak. Um, so in as much as those countries are cutting, really, it can't compete with the pace at which global growth is slowing down. So I think at some point, global leaders really have to sit down and ask, are we, are we preparing the world for a recession? Can we start changing our policies? Can we start reducing interest rates? Uh, because anything less than that might actually tip uh, the global economy into a recession. So I think uh, OPEC countries can reduce, uh, but still um, um, I think the global demand will continue driving the, the oil narrative. I mean, somebody sitting in Kenya might say, okay, that's a good thing, but, but when will that filter in into our local prices here? Yeah, because we are seeing sort of like a different uh, 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 narrative, but that's uh, not quite the case. So I think it's still the supply-side economics that will continue to, do to dominate global economy. And on to the big one now, family businesses and the impact on the economy. I was going through a survey conducted by PwC, and the last survey I could get my hands on was the 2018 survey, which is based on the interviews and the, you know, the kind of questions they conducted within the country and they said that family businesses in Kenya are in robust health. Now I need to add that this was in 2018 just before COVID came in and therefore we don't know really because they have not done a new one and when I got to reach out to them they actually told me that they have not released a new survey beyond this one. Um, but interestingly is that vast majority 82% compared to 84% globally Kenyan respondents said that the growth will be quick and aggressive. But this was just before COVID, again. Now, before we get into family businesses and succession, Wanja, welcome again. Thank you. Where does family begin and where does it end? So, um, first of all, thank you, um, Danny. Thank you, Ken, for having me on the show to talk about this very important uh, and timely and urgent topic. Um, when it comes to family business, family businesses are distinct from your regular corporate um, environment because you have the element of family in the business and not only in the business, but in the ownership structure as well. So. For a family-owned business, family exists as a system on its own, but family also exists in the business system as well as in the ownership system. So where does it begin? It begins with family, but it filters into the other areas of business and ownership as well. When, when, when people set up businesses, when founders come in, set up a business, do they consider the extent of the involvement of the family, whether from a nuclear standpoint or from an extended family standpoint, on how the business is going to run? 
or do they set up the business in the hope that there's something they want to achieve, there's a legacy, and therefore from an operational standpoint, things can organize themselves? Um, yeah, great question. Most times it's an entrepreneur starting out, starting a business to uh, support a family, pay for children's education. You know, most family businesses start when this entrepreneur is also young, right? Um, and in this country, you will find that a lot of people who uh, just through sheer grit, ingenuity, being entrepreneurs, risk takers, built over time businesses that uh, did educate their children. Children go off to school, they come back and there's a business that they can work in. So there is a life cycle, a development life cycle of the family business, which then if it continues to grow, if these are managed well, will turn into an enterprise in that you will find the, the, the business has shifted from an original operating company to a diversified portfolio, you know, because now you go beyond that one business and start in investing in other businesses so you have an enterprise. Um, do founders think about the next generation? Some do, some don't. Um, you'll find that for a lot of personalities, they're very associated with this business. It's part of their identity. It's them. It's their thing. So um, even when it comes to thinking about giving away what they have built and created, that can be difficult for, for some entrepreneurs. We ask this because if you look at the contribution of family-owned businesses to the economy, is really high. So we are talking about a GDP of $110 billion, and Kenya family-owned businesses contribute 80% to that amount, which comes to around $88 billion. From a macroeconomic perspective, you know, all factors considered that go into making businesses successful, that's really big. That means that largely 1% if we use Kenya as an example, 1% of the Kenyans are worked for by 50 million Kenyans, right? What challenges do family business go through as they're getting to this kind of level or trying to expand? So um, great point, looking at this from a macroeconomic perspective and can talked about that. We're looking at the four uh, factors of production, land, labor, capital, enterprise, which you'll find all of those inside of a family business. Um, that inequality, that what you know, you're talking about the 1%, the level of capital, where it's held and how it's deployed, it spreads across an economy because, you know, it's, uh, it, it's from the one store family business to a larger enterprise, you know, people who have got a, a diversified portfolio. It, it, it spans that spectrum. Um, so the level of significance of family businesses is really high. But as, as I said, the family element is what distinguishes uh, family capital from your typical corporate. And that is where it all begins, right? The, the interpersonal dynamics of a family system, the heterogeneity. There is no one family that is the same as the other. They're all different. And these differences are what create, you know, one family enterprise does really well, another doesn't. Um, you have a family where family members are aligned in their values and their goals. They have a common vision. Um, and another family doesn't have that. So you will see differences in how well they perform. But again, you can't strictly compare because, you know, there's, there's those four elements of capital. But when we look at family businesses, we talk about capital. There are five capitals. Um, there's financial capital, but there's also human capital. 
there's intellectual capital, there's social capital, there's spiritual capital. And these are things that people don't think about. What is our, what is our human capital, our human resource as a family? What is the intellectual property that we're generating into profits as a family? And that, that's usually what the founder brings in, that intellectual capital. He has an idea, takes it to the market, excels with it. Um, there is the social capital. How are you contributing to the society that you exist in? Um, and this also includes employment. You know, you're employing a lot of people in your businesses. Spiritual capital is who are we as a family? Why are we here? Why do we exist? This is the part that most people don't pay attention to. But at the point of a succession event, such as the death of a, patri of a, you know, a founder or a matriarch, then you'll see that you know, the family falls apart and it starts affecting the business. So if we think about the contribution of, um, of loss when things go wrong inside of a succession process, all of the, um, you know, the capital that is not being generated because human, human capital is being deployed on infighting, for instance, you know, people aren't sort of applying that or the intellectual capital to build on that base. This, this, is, this is the conversation that we're having, you know. I think for listeners to realize that we, we lose so much when families don't come together and agree through an inclusive process. It has to be inclusive and it has to be open. It has to take into account that family members are different. People are different. They have different skills. So, you know, as you know, I'm sure if, if you have siblings, what you find is that families, there's a lot of competition. People compete for the attention of their parents. And when there's a succession event, that parent is almost replaced. It's a subconscious thing. It's not, it's not about entitlement so much. It's not about greed. You know, this is what people think. But actually what it is is that people are now trying to fill the, the, the hole that has been left, that vacuum, with these resources, they're still competing for the affections of their parents. And that is the nature of, of you know, these interpersonal dynamics that play out, um, that the press will sensationalize. It, be, it becomes entertainment. But for the people that are actually going through, um, you know, losing a, a central presence that that founding entrepreneur, uh, you know, whether it's the father or the mother or both, it is uh, a far more emotional process. You know, there is a ton of anxiety and tension that sort of introduced into the family system and then it spills over into the business system. So even employees, people who work in these businesses feel it. You know, I, I think a lot of times we don't think about uh, family enterprise being beyond a family, but it is everybody who works in that business. And for a lot of employees, that founder or that matriarch was also their father and their mother. You know, you, you hear a lot of stories. I got my first job because they gave me a job. I educated my children. I've risen. I've become, you know, a, a manager or an executive because uh, because they, they opened the door for me. So it affects us all. I think this is this is what, you know, we need to um, become aware of you know, wake up to the reality of that and start thinking about the need to um, address those interpersonal differences, the conflicts that arise. When you look at family uh, systems theory, conflict management is essential for a family business, as in people have to learn how to manage conflict. It, it, almost as, almost like a course. How do you handle conflict when conflict arises? Because it's inevitable. And that's because the level of interdependence in a family business is very high. Most people who don't grow up in a family business setting, well, you grow up and you leave the family. You go, you start your own, you see each other maybe on holidays, that's it. Family business, you're, you're connected. <laughs> 
Yeah, the level of interdependence is very high. So the so that is a that's a conflict point, and there are various ways in which um, you know family members can learn to create familiness, especially where it it, it hasn't existed, right? Um, yeah. Now I think that point of interdependence is quite significant, and I think it makes it very unique uh, from uh, what it called this maybe a corporate um, entity here in Nairobi. Can you imagine, Danny, if you and I and Wanja and Gracia were brothers and sisters having a board meeting right now, then tomorrow, being a Saturday, we're all going for a wedding for our cousins, and I'm asking Grace, did you settle the invoices? Did you run the marketing script? So it's all this intertwined that a normal person who worked in your corporate setup might not be used to. A lot of people lock off on Friday and sort of separate themselves from work and Monday. So that idea of interdependence needs to be managed. And I think the tools, the equipment to manage, uh, that is where coaching really needs to come in because it's not sometimes something that you find in your typical MBA program, in your normal business school program. A lot of business schools, when you go there, they give you sort of case studies of um, companies that are not necessarily family-owned. And I think that's why we need the tools, the equipment, the language uh, to be able to navigate this. And, you know, looking looking at succession, the continuity of family business, you know, in a very fast-changing business and, ch- and challenging business environment, owners introspect, right, on the legacy, on the purpose, on what makes uh, values for what counts for the businesses. Now, when transitions come in, does the continuity uphold, does the continuity of the family business uphold the founders' values and wishes, or do now the inheritors change the values of what has been set up, and then now they push their own values? So excellent question. First of all, if it has to have been consciously done, you know, the 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 founder may have a set of values that is that are they're not discussed. You know, they aren't. The, there's no discussion of values at meetings, so people can gather. You can get together for social events, but you may have inheritors who don't really know clearly what those values are. You know, they can. Um, they can interpret or assume, but you need to be clear. There should be clarity, right? These are my values. Um, But inheritors and acquirers, founders are acquirers, are the ones who have acquired this wealth, have different, uh, they've grown up in different times, different zeitgeist, different cultural environment. Your founders as I said, are risk takers. They are people who they strike once and it works. They're successful. You know, they know how to create capital. And, you know, these are typically people who started out without very much. So they know how to make it work. Inheritors have grown up with uh you know, they go to school, they don't have to worry about their school fees. They they live in a different world and a different reality. So their value system is different. It's different from the founders. And you'll find in family businesses, for instance, the founders, as they are building their enterprise, and typically till the end, they don't spend much. They'll reinvest capital. They're not interested in paying out dividends. You know, they may earn a salary. They may have their director's fees and what have you. The inheritor class will now start talking about dividend policies, dividend payouts. And so their mindset is different. So before a succession event, it's really important to bring the two together so that people can understand each other, but create a common vision, articulate those values, you know, so that when they're not there, People can go back to them, but you, you, they haven't been imposed on anybody. This has been through a process. And values, um, we also have to look at values and norms. 
So people are really good at, I mean, if I if I said, what's what's the top two values that most people will blurt out when you say, let's talk about values? Honesty, integrity, they'll say, okay, great. Is that the norm that's applied to how you do business? You know, in, in uh, you know, are people, are you greasing palms and uh, being cutthroat and underhanded in your business system, but then you have on a piece of paper, this is how, these are our values. So it's a process, you really have to work at it. It's not, um, it's, it's, it's not the kind of thing that you sort of uh, do in an afternoon. It takes a lot of um, introspection and participation from every member of the family to then come up with a set of values that everybody's aligned with across generations. You know, we're, we're, we're only looking at um, the founders, G1, the generation, first generation, the second generation. What about the third? What about the fourth? If you take the values of Gen Z and compare them to the values of the silent generation, that's a completely different set of values because people have just grown up in a different, different times. So this family business work, um, in addition to coaching, I consult. I'm a consultant and advisor and I use coaching in my process because it requires a mindset change pretty much for everybody that's involved in the process. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fourth generation. My dad came in from Agra with the train in 1899 and set up a steel company in the industry area way after, you know, maybe after Kenya got independence. And the values he had when he was setting up this company to produce steel were ingrained in, you know, honesty, the values you've just touched on. But we are living in a society in Kenya where the norm really just goes at crosswinds with the values that this company had been set up on. And therefore, for the survival and the existence of this brand and this company, you have to grease those palms. What happens in that situation? Do then the values continue as they were established, but then you just have to follow the norms or do you fight because it's now either survival or flourishing? Exactly. Um, so you have to be honest with yourself, you know, in, in, in what I, the work that I do, it's not for me to prescribe. You know, I, I don't prescribe to people what they should come up with, but I do make them aware of the difference between, say, a norm and a value. And yes, to survive, you may find that some some people will say, well, this, this is what we have to do to survive. It's the only way because this is how our industry is set up. Through this process, you may find that someone will say, okay, but we can lobby on this association and try and change these practices. We can speak to other members in the, in the industry and try and change these practices. If we come together, then, uh, you know, and we say we're not going to pay these exorbitant fees if you're sort of being extorted. I've seen that happen, right? But it's up to the family to decide. Are you going to maintain the values of honesty and integrity? Your, you know, your great grandparent, your great grandfather starting this business in an industrial area, or how are you going to survive? And you come up with that, you know, it, you, but it's something that is discussed. It's something that is discussed and you are thinking also about continuity. So the generations to come, you know, the new, the rising generations that are coming into the family business, they're also coming in with their values. You know, you will have rising gens saying, I'm not going to, I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to grease palms. And that's a conversation that the family then needs to have, right? You've got as a to, business. As a business, yeah. Then decide the way forward in terms of survival of the company. Yeah, it is. But this again, is a, is a, it's 
we, we were talking earlier about the potential for this kind of work to also change society, right? Because by realizing that it's not tenable, that you're rising gens, you know, millennials, Gen Zs are not interested in doing business under the table a lot of times. So how are you going to, how do you accommodate that? And you're not alone. You're not, you're not a, you're, you're a business inside of an industry. So other people are also going through this. Business practices will change. You'll find that business practices are, are changing because they will not, they, they want to do things in a different way. They want to legitimize things, for, for example. That's a process, but the family has to agree on that and understand that across the generations. And so does the agreement and the, and the process of changing the culture of not greasing palms happen when the company is dead or when it's still running and struggling to, to run? Probably still greasing palms. It's, they, you know, it's probably that that process might still be continuing if that's how they have to continue to survive. If they're basically being um, forced into these circumstances by external factors, which are beyond their control, you continue, the business continues. You have a whole ecosystem um, that you're supporting. It's not just the family. They're all the stakeholders that are participating in your enterprise, but the culture changes. The culture will change. Um, we have ESG now, right? So you've got a lot of businesses that are starting to focus on environmental, social governance um, issues. issues. Governance, that's a part of it, you know? Social issues, that's a part of it. How do you then embed that into the way you do business in a way that you also then continue to survive? So you also have to look at what's happening um, you know, in the environment, um, but the culture then changes. My granddad has passed on this company. It's gotten to my dad and he writes the will. What becomes the point of departure when most of these family businesses are being transitioned to new inheritors? Isn't the will binding? Because I suppose that the will is written in such a way that it's meant to further the continuance of the business. What point do my brother and I part and then it becomes something that now has a court process or we are haggling and struggling for property? How? So many things happen um, at that point. It could be that, uh, so you have this business and uh, let's say you, Danny, have been in the business. You've been working in the business as an executive, but your siblings haven't. So Ken, your, your brother hasn't been in the business. And so your father uh, puts it in the will that there'll be an equal distribution but you feel that because you've been in the business, you actually own the business or you deserve more of the business than Ken because Ken wasn't there. When you look at this from an advisory standpoint, the question would be, were you compensated for your work? So basically you were there as an executive. Did you have an exec, executive compensation package? Did you have uh, KPIs, how did you come into this role? Hopefully you were brought in on merit, you know, it was felt that, uh, you know, you will contribute, but you're paid for that. So you can't then claim that you own it. You can't sort of say uh, any other family member that wasn't involved in the business is not going to get anything. That tends to happen um, a lot of the time. Um, you will have culture. You're a woman and you should go and get married and be taken care of in some other household. Uh, so these things are going to be distributed amongst the boys here. You could also just have, you know, unscrupulous people who say, well, I've been waiting 
here all this time and sudden and now is it's it's my moment to do a power grab and that means that I'm going to grab as many assets as I can or if there are assets that uh, some siblings don't know about I'm not going to tell them about those assets and I'm going to take them because you're dealing with human nature inside of a family system as well you you're, you're dealing with human beings who can do some pretty cruel things to their own uh, brothers, sisters, right? That's why this work has to be done, where you say, okay, here's a will. What exists? What's, what, what are the assets as well? So list them, state them. This is what exists. How is this going to be distributed? And I would actually say, have this conversation before. I know there's a huge fear of death. People don't like to talk about it. But you live a freer, you're freer once you've sorted that out and then you can spend the rest of your time, which no one knows, we don't know how long we're here for, enjoying your life as opposed to worrying about people fighting over your assets because you've been very clear. Yes, in a will, it's written, but people also know what exists. You have that conversation with everybody together and you agree. Um, and this is, this is the work that I do. I support people in having that conversation, putting your assets on the table. I call it a, a portfolio dashboard. You know, this is what exists and start thinking about how you're going to distribute, have that agreement and, and have it be fair, as fair, fair, fair as possible, right? Um, sometimes you have people who are disinherited you know, you, you may have um, parents that are um, upset. Something has happened with one of their children and they get left out. You, so you may find that that person or those people will contest that decision. Um, so there are all sorts, of, all sorts of permutations of relationship that lead to, to these uh, disputes. Now let's talk about culture, because you mentioned culture. There is a narrative that Asian families tend to understand family business um, better than Africans. Um, first of all, do you buy that narrative? And if you do, are there reasons, because they're operating under the same constitution as Africans are? What's your take on that opinion? Um, I think that it's a narrative. I, I don't. I don't particularly agree with it entirely. Um, the narrative also used to run that you know you'd always see the kids of uh, Asian shop owners in the shop or in the fa on the factory floor. They'd come in. They'd start, you know, on when they were on holiday, and sort of work their way up into the business. Go off to school. You have a lot of Asian families where the kids go to school and they say, we don't want to come back. We have found good jobs here. We want to live a life away from the family business. Um, Asian families also tend to be quite, uh, like the level of interdependence is really high. And it's changing now culturally, but you would find, you know, a family, everybody lives in the same house, right? So you are living in the same house, going to work in the same business, in coming back. Yeah, and uh, very interesting dynamics playing out in the family system. So the branches, you know, you typically hear of the brothers. It's the brothers who are now working a business. Um, I've interacted with people where there have been major fallouts where, uh, you know, a, a brother has been tricked out of a share of of their of the business, for example, um, just because they they can be manipulated. You know, I've, I've seen that happen. I've I've uh, had a case where uh, one one family member knew of an asset that existed and took it, <laughs> just kept it and said, "Well, no one knows," but. You know, so the process that we went through was, yes, they may not know, but this is really for 
there are other family members that need this as a resource, right? So you, you need to disclose it. And people will change. The, the reason why these things come up in these in sessions is because people are feeling guilty. You know, um, these are your relatives. So at some level, but to come back to your question, it's not, it's got, it, it isn't about uh, the ethnic profile um, necessarily or the culture. It is the world over. The family enterprise field exists because these, these issues are common, whether it's the States, whether it's the UK. We have the British royal family, uh, Asian family, we have the Ambani's. They, they fell out. It is, um, it is about resources. It's about money, but most of all, it's about love. It's really about parental love. I can't emphasize this enough, but, but it's subconscious. So, so people don't talk about that. Also, people don't talk about love, right? People don't talk about um, the love of their parent and how they feel if they, if they feel that one sibling is, is more favored than the other. Um, if they feel that, uh, you know, you, you, have, you have younger generations who've had a completely different experience growing up and so they must be spoiled. And you deserve more because you've got less. And don't forget that, you know, especially for very successful founders, they're busy. You know, these are people who are busy. They're not, uh, they may not be, follow your typical parenting styles because they're out there doing, you know, creating, being. In in our kind of environment, you have also, you know, this, this kind of like political people, right? They're busy with their constituents, also with their businesses, also with all sorts of things. So that emotional need that that cannot be expressed when there's a succession event and it's felt because we don't have a lot of uh, room in our culture for people to grieve properly completely you'll find that they attach now to the assets what's been left behind but it's just it's a substitute for that parent you know it's it's and not in a crude way it's just that it's it's unconscious. So it's something that people haven't grappled with. You know, a lot of conversations don't allow you to go deep enough to to get to that, right? To realize that. So you say, okay, take the time to grieve, <laughs> take the time to grieve, and then come back to now dealing with this estate. Um, but don't use the estate as a substitute for for that. Let's go back to the to the two brothers in India. None was disherited. And the separation of the estate was done in what you'd consider logical. What makes then that these two brothers have to come out against each other and, and fight? Uh, actually, there was no will. The, the father died interstate. And, um, and so they started, you know, there was a there was a fight over the the estate because there was there was a bro it was now a family enterprise a broad portfolio so the mother is the one who came in and this this you know their dispute was public because their company's reliance group is huge and Very she big. split she split uh the assets so one had the petrochemical side the oil and gas that's Mukesh Ambani and then there's Anil who took um, the energy side, electricity, financial services, and he didn't do very well. So at some point, his older brother sort of recapitalized him, right? Um, what goes wrong? I mean, they're two different industries. Just because you're brothers doesn't mean you're going to perform the same. You know, these are, these are some of the standards that I think we need to just uh, give people a break and and relax on that you you compare siblings but they're not the same it's 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 um it's it, it would be a terrible burden to be compared to the successful amazing 
brother and you, you know, if you're struggling rather than people just allowing you to be you. It's also another thing where uh, you, you're walking in the shadow of a giant. You know, when people don't allow you to be you, you have to be like your father, the great man. And but you're just you. Right. There has to be that space for you to to be yourself and to self actualize, to to go to to have your self realization. Um, that's what happened. That's what happened. Wouldn't it make sense then that we identify our strengths, right? Ken is better in managing businesses than I am, and he can have the operational side of the estate, and I can leave off his good work because, in the end, Mukesh still stands tall as an entrepreneur, as a person who can be growing businesses, and the brother doesn't. Regardless of the capabilities they've been, both been given, it's in the end an, an issue of a brother who can manage things properly and one who can't. And therefore, you have to see this kind of a decline on this part of the estate and this other one is flourishing. If it happens, it happens. And I think in this case, um, you know, the, the brother came in to help his brother, but the capital had been set has been separated. So at this point, the distribution was made. And so, well, your loss is your loss. You, you know, you the 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 brother who has lost uh, capital through whatever transactions, that's what you have to live with and rebuild. You also have people who by the way, you know, they rebuild. So we don't know. His story is not over. And I, I think this is another thing. Let's not uh, sort of cast in iron things that we see without uh, realizing that it swings. People lose their shirt, make it back. It, it's, it's life. And they're, do, they're doing that, you know. I'm sure that they're... they're they're applying their human capital to figuring that out. What's the next step? How are you going to make your comeback? In what sector? So, so I'm saying this because I think we need to focus on what is in front of us. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy to sort of be entertained by these stories and, oh, it's impossible because, look, if it's happened to the Ambani's and it's happened to this family and it's happened to that, it's inevitable. Not true. You know, a lot of times people are also just working it out. They're just figuring out how to manage these themselves inside of these systems. The family system, the business system, the ownership system. It's very complex. And if you have a big enterprise like they do, even if you have a small enterprise, you know, even if you have, you're starting out with a business, the point is that you have to keep thinking about that vision the business has to grow because your family is going to grow. There are going to be more members in your family. So the family health is important. The business also has to grow. It has to evolve. There has to be an entrepreneurial orientation and mindset. You, you, you know, the ca you're not going to have an operating company existing forever. Businesses, your, your great grandfather's uh, factory, steel, you know, it could reach a point of maturation and unless it innovates, go into a, to, a, to decline. So how are you applying that family capital? That's where you have to come and sit at a table and agree. Indeed. Let's, let's, let's look at the role of advisors in, in the succession of family businesses because they're very instrumental in, in, on the way forward but they are also very instrumental in the mismanagement and acquiring personal wealth from the melee within the succession. Is there any way that family-owned businesses can actually do these transitions without involving advisors? Um, personally, and not because. <laughs> not because. Uh, no, not because of a family business advisor. I don't think so. Because you, you, need, you need somebody who can come in objectively 
and unpack the dynamics at play. Um, where family members try and work things out themselves, you'll find a, rep a repetition of uh, poor communication. You know, that, that's, that is what I have seen. So you have negative feedback loops. They're just communicating in the same way, finding themselves in the same place, fighting. But if you are a conscious advisor and you come in and you can diffuse that, that's one thing. Second thing is, are there conscious? Are there conscious advisors? I'm one, <laughs> <laughs> and okay. there are. There are others. There are others. Um, you have to separate emotional and structural issues. What a lot of advisors, I'd rather even say, um, structural advisors, lawyers, financial planners, they try and deal with emotional issues with structures. Never do that. Never do that. You have to separate the two and deal with the emotional. You, you have to make time to deal with it. You, you can do it in parallel, but you have to take you have to separate them and address both. Third thing that I would say. If advisors, if you're working with advisors who are charging you on the basis of your assets. I wouldn't go for that. Because there's a there's a conflict of interest there right um and they would they will prolong or they'll allow the conflict because they're getting paid out of that conflict you you find that a lot with well, lawyers. managing yeah that you know keep the keep the conflict alive so that you 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 continue to earn so I would say have just uh, just have fee based arrangements and you know don't um, also don't use advisors. You have family members who will use advisors for to their advantage, and these are advisors who will say, "Well, if you're the one who's if you're paying, if you're the one who's cutting the check, or if this is the dominant coalition, whether they're carrying out a huge injustice, we're gonna go with them because." We're really, we're just here to make some money and leave. You need to, my advice to people, speak to people, talk to people and find out. Uh, I've heard about this advisor. Can I get a referral? Do your homework. Lawyers, do your homework to see who, you know, who, who's actually just going after somebody's estate rather than providing, being a professional. You know, the, the, the definition of a professional is somebody who does no harm. So you, you because it is also so sensitive, it's so emotional, you don't need people messing you about and making your conflicts even worse. And they don't care. Right. And a, a lawyer is not going to give you your family's plan. That's another thing. A lot of people rush to the lawyer. You 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 devise a plan for me. They don't know your family. They don't know the dynamics. They should structure the agreements, whatever agreements you come up with, your shareholders agreement, write your will. If it's a if it's a trust deed, if you're setting up a trust, but go to them when you have sat with your family and figured out how it's going to go. Don't go to them. And this is just my advice. OK, don't go to them to ask them what to do. I have this dilemma. The other thing is trustees. People need to understand what happens when you set up a trust. You give a you you basically cede ownership. So once you put your assets into a trust, you can't come back and say, "Well, because I, you know, I I am the boss. I it's my capital. It's my it doesn't belong to you anymore." You have to understand that you're ceding ownership into a trust, and the trustees are going to control that trust. So I've seen people who. The, the, the beneficiaries, they've never seen a tr the trust deed. They don't, I mean, they are treated like uh, worse than children and their adults. Yeah, by strangers, by people who have no emotional connection to them. So there are things like private trust companies where you can have family members as trustees. Think about things like that, but take your time. Because a trust structure is going to change everything. You're not going to be having AGMs. 
Yeah, you're not, it, it changes how decisions are made. And a lot of people go into this not understanding because they're being sold a product. They're being sold a trust structure. Let's come and set it up for you. What What is it going to do to the family dynamics? What is it going to do to your business operations? How decisions are made around that business? So all of this takes time. So don't wait. Don't wait until, oh, you've been diagnosed with something. You've got a few months to live. Suddenly, you know, this is where you see all sorts of dramas in the paper, people under duress. Again, it happens all over the world, so I'm not pointing to any anybody in particular, but you don't want to wait. Um, I have, I, my, my very first client was an elderly man who had acquired a lot of wealth. And when we had our first meeting, he was so, he'd, he'd basically given up, you know, when he first walked into the meeting. We had that meeting. The second meeting, he came in jumping. He jumped into the room. He was like, I'm so happy. I have a new lease of life because I can see that we're actually working towards something. And and we did. And it, it takes time. They're, you know, them sorting their stuff out. It took like a year and a half, two years. You start a process. They'll kind of go back. They'll come back again. They'll go back. But all sorts of things were going on, you know, family abroad. They're not talking to each other. There was a lot of work to do, but they figured it out and he retired. He could retire, which is what he wanted to do. You know, this is somebody who had had a stroke. And so there was there was that need to kind of get into it. But I would say, don't wait. Don't wait. And and it's it, you're not calling death. This this myth that if you talk about it, you're calling it. No, you're not. You're just giving yourself more time to enjoy yourself with your children, your grandchildren, travel, do the things that you wanted to do, as opposed to spending precious months, right? When you should really be telling people how much you love them and care for them, trying to figure out an estate. And those moments of vulnerability, that's when people really take advantage. They really take advantage. You know, a lot of, a lot of, these professional advisors. You need time to think things through, have 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 meetings, sit with, with your children, sit with your spouse, you know, figure out a plan, come to agreement. When you're forming teams, there's several stages. Yeah, there's, you form the team, say this is the team, we're a team, we're gonna work together. Then you storm. So that's where you've gotta stay You've got to stay and not leave so that you can storm through it, right? And then you norm and then you perform. So you, you then go on to perform. And that really is, is, is what I hope that people listening to this show will take away. You have to do the work. Amazing. And just before we wind up, is there any way the 1% that's listening that we all work for can reach you? Because I don't think... This kind of advice works for 50,000 Bob holders in an eighth, or does it? Um, yes, it does. I give advice. In fact, I have a webinar on Friday, the 25th of August. So to register, you go to my website, which is www.bbold.co.ke. That's be bold without the E uh-huh. between the two Bs. Um, and my business is Be Bold Consulting and Advisory Limited. And um, I, I work with, you know, I work with everyone. But the thing is that I, my services are highly personalized because I am doing the coaching. I am, you know, working with the family and the family business, the top management team. So um, reach out to me and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work something out. Do you have a number that they can call you on or SMS? Sure. 0716-112-594. Do you want to share your rates? Or do we leave that to those who call you? (laughs) Yes. And, you know, they, (laughs) they can, they can call. They can also go to my website to see uh, what my consultation rates are. And when I work with families, we negotiate. 
we'll, we'll negotiate the rate because it's a package. It depends on how many family members are participating in the program. Um, what I do is I work on the personal development as well as the structural development. And um, there's education. There's a learning and development uh, part of this that people need because you need to know what are the structures? How do you grow? We're talking about, you know, portfolio development. We're talking about the life cycle of a family. We're talking about family systems. There's a lot of um, theoretical applications to this. So, that you know, th th these are things that I have experienced, but also studied so that there's a structure to it. It's not just some random <laughs> advice, advice being given, you know. Um, but yes, please, I'd love to to hear from people. We'll share your contacts on our social media pages, um, brothers, sisters, wealth holders, all of you, you know who to reach. Now you know how to manage family businesses. So many of us are relying on you, our economy included. And therefore, let's just do things the right way and then we can continue prospering the country. Thank you very much, Wanja. Thank you, Ken. Catch up on this latest episode and the previous episodes of Financial Focus on Capital FM SoundCloud page or anywhere else where you get your podcast from. We'll see you again next Tuesday. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Ken.